I guess I'll get the apologies out of the way first. I'm definitely sorry for the fact that I wasn't able to go through and get an episode after the sprawling Evangelion episode that we were able to put out. I decided to go to the east side of Canada with my mic and my laptop, and unfortunately, my battery got completely shorted, and my laptop has been dead for a number of weeks now, so I definitely apologize for that short-sightedness on my part, so I'm hoping that you'll be able to at least give me a little bit of leniency on top of the fact I will try and make it up to you guys, considering that I'm going to be putting out four episodes over the next four weeks to try and catch up with a couple of things, decide to catch up on the in-betweens, considering that we've had a transition between seasons in the meantime, as well as go through a handful of ideas that have been on my mind for quite a bit. So, now that that's all out of the way, hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea Sky. Finally back after not really much of a hiatus, just an, just an unexpected twist thanks to my laptop dying on me, so unfortunately I wasn't able to do anything around the time since I didn't have uh, any resources at my disposal to kind of get an episode at the time that I was over there. So I'm definitely sorry about that fact. In the meantime, I was able to go out, uh, see my cousin get married, catch up with a couple of relatives, go out and see a couple of buddies back from my university days, also go out and visit Croc, and uh, go out have a couple of beers with him, considering that it was a good time to see him for the first time after we were able to go out and coerce and make our Evangelion episode together, which is technically only the first part of probably a two-parter, considering that we still got the rebuild films to go, and he has recently finished his end of the bargain, so we'll probably come together and finish that up on our own end in the near future. And as I understand that there have been a lot of pieces to pop up over the past uh, couple of weeks in terms of news headlines and the majority of it, I think I'm going to keep it relatively simple and catch up on a handful of things that we ended up getting announcements for, for not only television series, but anime films as well, and other pieces that are going to be coming to Netflix and other streaming services and other th new projects that have been coming out of studios as of late. Um, and we will definitely get to that as I will expand upon it in other episodes for the other pieces and at least the more niche sets of information that we've been able to learn over the past month. Definitely going off of a series that I really enjoyed in the previous summer season, or sorry, spring season, would definitely be Odd Taxi, considering that even though it has been over for at least three months now, uh, Pony Canyon, who was the licensor and distributor of the series, ended up putting out a box set to try and get a physical release of this out in the world. And at the time, they didn't necessarily think that there was much of it. They weren't expecting too much uh, pre-orders to come in. They weren't expecting as much support as the series was going to get, even with how much of a ruckus that it was able to catch online. So even though they were expecting you know, a handful of things with a set of goals and a couple of different milestones to give extra pieces to it, breaking several thousand uh, sets on the barrier. There wasn't necessarily much going on when the pre-order campaign started in June. And then in August, the campaign extended to overseas customers. And after that, thousands upon thousands of pre-orders came in, breaking the 3,000 barrier for, a, for an Otakawa figure, breaking the 4,300 orders for the audio commentaries, and at the end of the day, making a set of 6,038 boxes. 
being ordered in total, which was over 20 times the minimum amount required for the set to be issued in the first place. So I'm definitely ecstatic and thankful that the support for this series has definitely been outpouring to a great modium of success. It definitely deserves it. I'm really curious to see how it's going to be uh, released over the next couple of months, but I'm really curious to see what kind of extras that they're able to full and include inside of the set, because it is definitely a series that is worth everybody's time. And now in terms of series and movies that we're probably going to be able to get release dates over the next couple of months, the Blade Runner Black Lotus anime is going to premiere on Netflix on November 13th, so that's really going to be interesting to go through and check out. I don't really have many expectations leading into it. I'm really keeping like it low to any kind of degree, because even though Blade Runner is definitely a really good setting for, you know, an anime adaptation or anything related to that to actually be included inside of its world, I'm just not going to hold, like, anything against it regardless of how it turns out. Um, so hopefully it does, but if not, eh, well, you know what, it comes and goes. But on the comedy side of the spectrum, Regretsko Season 4 is going to be premiering in December as well. And considering that I recently caught up on that about mm, two months ago... It's not anything that knocked my socks off, but I definitely thought it was an enjoyable read, especially as they got into the darker underbellies of the idol world come in the third season, after we were able to get more than enough of a decent idea on the relationships between the characters in the series. I'm really kind of curious to see how the main duo is going to be moving forward, considering that the biggest question mark that this series has, especially from its new poster, is definitely the odd but very menacing figure standing in the middle of its frame. So I'm kind of curious to see how they're going to be uh, pushing forward with that, but once it comes out in December, I'm definitely going to be giving it a watch. Uh, moving on to later, Mamoru Hosoda's Bell is finally going to get a screening, in the U.S. at least, on January 14th. Still don't know how exactly that's going to translate to us up here in Canada, but you know what, we've, I don't know, it's just kind of a bit of a back and forth. I know that torrents have been leaked online at this point already, but at the, for something like this, um, like, Mamoru Hosoda is definitely, even though he's been on, like, kind of an up-and-down, like, shaky start, I still don't think he's made anything to top The Girl Who Left Through Time just yet, The clo but the closest one to me that comes to breaking that would definitely be Summer Wars. And if there's anything for the promotional material that I've been able to see of Bell, it seems that he's definitely going back to his roots and figuring out that sort of digital storytelling in between the couple of main leads that we're going to see. So if there's anything for me to be excited about for anything of his catalog that's going to be coming up in the near future, it's definitely going to be this. And I'm hoping that a couple of people are also going to be as interested as I am because we just might not get it up here in Canada just yet, so hopefully that changes in the next couple of months. Something also that kind of really popped up that I didn't really have any expectations for is that there is going to be a film coming out by Studio Colorido uh, calling Drifting Home, and it's going to be an animated film done by the same team that ended up doing A Whisker Away, as well as... Honestly, one of the biggest surprises that I had over the past couple of years, Penguin Highway. So if there's any recommendations that I can go through and go and set and dive into Studio Colorado's catalog, it would definitely be going through and giving Penguin Highway, even though it's incredibly out there, it's dynamic, it's rambunctious, and very t at times often confusing. But to be fair, it's definitely something that you should give a watch if you're still looking for anything to uh, jump into nowadays. So at least at this point in time, Colorido is going to be debuting this on Netflix sometime in 2022 worldwide. So I'm kind of curious to see how they're going to do this as their third full-length animated film. 
But if we're also going to lean into something that's a little more on the tame side and the relaxing side, especially with the kind of content that this series was actually able to bring through and bring us into its relaxing and at times dynamic and outgoing nature, uh, Laid Back Camp is going to be having its film premiere in the summer of 2022, at least in Japan. If that's the case, we're probably going to be able to get a North American release by the end of 2022, if that's how the uh, scheduling is going to go. But at this point in time, all we know is that the five main characters of uh, this series are all going to be a little older. All of them are going to be relating to some sort of camping trip, all revolving around Matt Fuji as it does. But I'm really curious to see how this is going to be uh, settled in, because to be fair... If anything, it's going to be more Eurocamp. It's going to be an incredibly relaxing, serene, and overall enjoyable experience. So I'm honestly can't wait to see that come out at the end of next year, considering that it's going to be just another good dose of comfy material that everybody else that I know is going to be able to indulge in to the highest degree. And finally, something that's going to be an interesting page turn, especially for the amount of distributors that have been popping up in the woodwork nowadays high-end distributors as well for talking about Netflix anime releases, Amazon anime releases, as well as the merger between so uh, Sony's Funimation as well as Crunchyroll. The bigger players are starting to get even bigger as the time goes on, and now another monolith is stepping into the anime streaming game, Disney. Disney Plus is going to be streaming a handful of titles coming in 2022, which is going to be the Tatami Galaxy sequel, which is Tatami Time Machine Blues, the Black Rock Shooter Dawn Fall, as well as Summertime Rendering. It's... It's it's really weird. If I had to choose between this being a positive or a... If I had to choose this between being an overall positive or an overall negative, it's kind of concerning in this kind of uh, setup, especially with uh, Disney Plus being able to go through and kind of dip their toes with the relationships of anime studios with their um, Star Wars visions, which is probably an episode I'm going to get to at some point, but um, that'll be noted at a later date. It's just that, that is, this is another monolith coming into play. And so for smaller ones like High Dive and any other licensor trying to get into the anime medium as a distributor... It's just becoming more and more difficult for any of the smaller ones to kind of like have a mainstay when, say, literally Disney just walks up and says, oh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll take the licensing fees and the production costs and the distribution costs of four, stu or of four series just off the bat, and we're just going to put them out next year. I mean, it's not necessarily nonchalant, but like, damn, they're just, <laughs> just stepping into this, having absolutely no hesitation like leading into after their previous relationships with, with uh, Visions. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, the major series that I'm really interested in to kind of see how that turns out is going to be Tatami Time Machine Blues, as it's going to be the sequel to the Tatami Galaxy. But, I don't know, with Disney making this kind of a move and kind of not only dipping their toes, but probably getting their feet wet, especially in terms of anime distribution, I really don't know how that's going to be playing in the future. I'm... Curious, but also concerned to see how this kind of relates to the bidding wars that are going to be going through between the majority of distributors and licensors and streaming services over the coming years. But I don't know. At that point in time, I guess we're going to have to wait and see because it's just going to get more expansive, but even more constrained to just these handful of people that are going to be the ones in charge of actually picking up all the uh, anime international distributions. So, I don't know. So, I guess the quickest and easiest 
jumping off point for one of these episodes is definitely the fact that over the past month, we have made a transition from the summer anime season into the fall of 2021. And there are, I've already been able to go through and start my handful of shows that I'm going to be jumping in with and basically uh, watching over the next three months. But I guess now is as good a time as any to kind of go through and give my summary on the handful of shows that I ended up going through and completing and watching over the course of the summer season. Um, So I guess I'll get the easy but hard-pressed one to say out of the way first. Uh, My Hero's fifth season, or My Hero Academia's fifth season just ended, and it is possibly the most disappointing uh, season of My Hero that I have watched to date. Probably because I had expectations leading into this season, knowing what arcs were going to be coming up, knowing that My Villain Academia was hopefully going to be the one to take everybody out of their seat and legitimately push this series into a into an area that hasn't necessarily gone before. And it tried, but it definitely dropped the ball in terms of the priorities that it was able to take for the rest of it. Because... For the manga readers, when I was just getting into this series, after the overhaul arc, it was incredibly slow and painful to read week by week on how Class A versus Class B was going to go, and I was really hoping that they would be able to just quickly breeze past that and just go through the meatier parts of what this season was going to bring, and A versus B took up half the season, which was insane to me, because... Right after that, not only did they decide to waste the most amount of time on the least poignant arc of this series, they ended up flipping two arcs back-to-back in, in, in an entirely different order. Like, in terms of time-wise, in terms of scheduling-wise, in terms of memoir-wise, it's the only reason that I could have expected them to do something so, like, asinine and so, like, backwards was that it would have been more in line for them to actually line up the television series to lead up to the third film. Which, okay, congratulations, you did that, and and the only thing that it took away, all it costed you, was was flipping the entire story around, having two filler episodes that were completely unnecessary to anything leading up to it, being two of the most boring episodes of the season by far, and now just completely shafting and giving the least amount of time to the biggest player, the biggest arc that is going to have the biggest amount of ramifications as well as the biggest impact going forward in the story, I'm pretty sure they gave it seven episodes. And I know it wasn't, it isn't as long of a story that needed to be told. It wasn't as long of an arc that actually had to go through because you could go through it relatively quickly But the importance and the growth and the implications of what happened in the last quarter, basically, of this season is going to be the jumping off point to what happens in season six. And season six, even though I know I sound like a broken record, is going to be massive. It is going to be game-changing. And the fact that leading into that season, you decided to just give the least antiquated and most lackluster bare-bones telling of the arcs that were preceding it, I can't really, like, give it, like, any kind of praise. Like, even Yutaka Nakamura, even Yudapon's cuts were just not not as dynamic, not as flashy, not used in the best way that they could have been. And even the fact that 
the Endeavor arc was good. It's just that it was such an odd place for it to be, especially in the sandwiched in between these two heavily contrasting arcs that were essentially supposed to be swapped in terms of time. Like, you could have gone so... You could have shaved off so much fat with A versus B, but you decided to shave off more meat instead in the terms of My Villain Academia's arc. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It was... I like where the manga is now. I just really am kind of disappointed that I went through and it felt like a chore. It didn't... It wasn't an enjoyable experience kind of seeing how my hero was going to adapt this story especially with how they were able to basically chunk in half of the season to just a throwaway arc. But yeah, I don't know. It's... I don't know. <laughs> At least there's the manga. At least the manga has been, like, incredibly uh, dynamic and, like, really, like, game-changing in its own way. But I just... Yeah, I, I... Because of how the movies have weaseled their way into the scheduling in between all of this, I'm really concerned to see, like, when they announce... Inevitably announce My Hero Academia's fourth film. Because you know that's an inevitability, and you know it's going to fuck with the schedule, and you know it's going to be something that's going to be a detriment to the season that's going to be in tandem with its production. So yeah, I, it's, I don't know. It's kind of aggravating. They they had a goal. They had to fit the film's scheduling and the film's timeline in with the animes, and they did it. But it was at the expense of everything else surrounding it, and overall, it was just a more negative experience. One of the more negative ones that I had with this entire series. But in terms of a series that I had an even more adverse, a more negative and just seething deprecation and just overall anger at how it wasted my time and how pointless it was... Like, I'll just go flat and say that the entire... Like, uh, I think it was not 52 episodes, because there were it was short of that. So I think it was 43. So there were 43 episodes in total of Higurashi's quote-unquote remake slash sequel. And I'm going to get to that. Not today, but I am going to get to that at a later episode that I'm going to be putting up probably around Halloween... It's going to be a general, like, oh, ooh, spooky horror anime recommendations. Uh, it's I'm, I'm totally original. Um, but I would imagine that the majority of that episode is going to be talking about my relationship between the entirety of the Higurashi series. And I'm just going to, like, flat out say it. I'm pretty sure I gave this final season a 2. Like, a 2 out of 10. It was that abysmal to me and that pointless and that infuriating it was just such a throwaway project that i was expecting to have some reason to exist that it would feed into a greater piece because i know that the author of higurashi has a handful of works that are almost in tandem with the rest of their stories and maybe i was expecting that kind of thing to happen and it didn't, and it just makes me even more confused and more irritated about the fact that this had no reason to exist. And I was, and I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I said that multiple times in previous episodes. Why does this Higurashi sequel slash remake need to exist? Why did this end up having to come into production? And ultimately, I can't answer that question. But I'll try in the next couple of weeks. 
Um, but at least I can get back on something that had more of a reason to exist and something that was at both a pleasantly surprising and at one at the same time slipshod method of just storytelling and just overall zealousness of it. And that would essentially be Madhouse's uh, Sunny Boy. And so in the first place, why I was getting interested and why, like, Sunny Boy got put on my radar was that it was going to be directed by Shingo Natsume. And, I mean, this was the man that did the first season of mm-hmm. One Punch Man, as well as him still being in his own stomping grounds and working with the same team over at his uh, own, like, given home at Studio Madhouse. And so the first episode was probably the strongest episode or the strongest opening episode of the entire season. And the first, it's it's really interesting. It's really odd. If I had to give an option to either recommend this to somebody or kind of just leave it by the wayside as a piece of entertainment that I enjoyed but I can't recommend, it's not really something that I can wholeheartedly like give that to. Like I can't give this a resounding recommendation to anybody who is, like, interested in Shingo Natsume, if anybody is interested in modern original storytelling, if they're interested in anything, like, related to Madhouse. It doesn't really go through. It's it's weird, for sure, but it's definitely confusing, slipshod, and just kind of all over the place on the majority of the time. I think based on the gaps and based on kind of the, uh, not really story arcs, but the anthologies and the timeline on how this series went, I would say that my favorite part was definitely the first five episodes where we felt like we were solving the problem. We felt like we were finding a way home. We felt like there was a way that we could actually get these characters to safety as well as give them a reason why they ended up starting to drift in the first place. And we got that answer and the answer was that you didn't matter. And now everybody is essentially left to do what they want, knowing the knowledge that they now know, and it sort of devolves into an anthology series with different stories, different theoretical concepts, with different lead characters at the helm of every episode. And that was, I think, like episodes 6 through 10. So the next five episodes were definitely just... Yeah, weird. Weird is <laughs> the easiest way for me to put it. But the last two ended up finally starting to get on track where not everybody was still on the same page, but at least the characters that we had left had a goal in mind and they had something to strive towards. And the fact that they were able to go through with it at the end, especially with probably something that is more akin to like an anime music video that happens in the last episode was probably one of the most striking scenes that I've seen all year. But even then, it wasn't able to kind of like bring it all back to something that was satisfying. And to most, it would be disappointing. But to me, I think the episode and the series ended in a way that felt natural, in a way that still closed all the doors and ended up settling up all the things that they needed to say. But I will admit to a lot of people, which it definitely seemed like it was, a little bit of a downer um, and disappointing and kind of depressing ending. But it was an ending that made sense, and it was an ending that was definitely natural 
to the characters that were living inside of this universe, and it was an ending that was definitely natural to the story and what it was trying to convey and how the characters were trying to build themselves up and come full circle. So... Sunny Boy was definitely... It, Sunny Boy is probably going to end this year as probably the most interesting series that I ended up watching as it normally goes with original series nowadays. And the only way I can recommend this is that if you're looking for something really out there, if you're not scared of the, you know... <laughs> I, I absolutely... I, oh no, I actually kind of hate this because it's it's sort of just an isekai. It, it's, I've got tricked into watching a modern original isekai with high school students and i haven't done that since fucking konosuba so i don't know at least so the fact that sunny boy was able to do that on its own definitely is able to get like a little bit of praise in that sense but it's not an isekai in, in the like common sense of the word but if you're looking for something that's really out there I think it's definitely something that would be able to be up your alley if you're looking for something that is completely out of the ordinary. And leading into something that I had mixed feelings over, for sure, and something that I knew would have gone in either direction, which definitely would have been Aquatope by the Sea. And so this is done by PA Works, and PA Works is really good at melding in supernatural elements to their stories, as well as it being a, a real and grounded um, semblance, whether it's people growing up in their 20s, people growing up in their teens, people growing up it, like literally and losing pockets of their life while everybody grows up around them. Their workplace, <laughs> their workplace, it almost comes back around to what is essentially is uh, workplace dramas. Whether it's doing an original series like working on the anime industry um, out of Shirobako, whether it is working in the tourism industry with Sock Request, whether it's working at an onsen with Hanasaku Iroha, um, it's kind of like all over the place, especially when it comes to their adaptations, because they can have something like Shirobako, and then they can have something like Glass Lip. They can have something like Sock Request, and then they can also go through the entire rigmarole of just melodrama in the same way as um, Lull of the Sea. So PA Works is very up and down in terms of their productions, and I feel like this series in particular is kind of that condensed into one series, considering that the first half of the series is based in a aquarium uh, out in the Okinawa Islands, like just off the coast of Japan. And it's a aquarium that's closing down and it's being headed by this really headstrong uh like teenager i think she's in like her final year of high school and she needs to rally up as many people as she can and get in enough advertisers and get in enough uh not advertisers um get enough attendees to go through and visit the aquarium and try and get as many people as she can so they don't necessarily end up closing down at the end of the summer, considering that her grandpa has been one of the ones that has been keeping this afloat for a number of years, and he is an incredible um, aqu uh, aquamarine biologist or <laughs> there is no way that's the correct term, but kind of, kind of the, but kind of something like that in a similar vein. And you also have this like one random girl who I had absolutely no cares given to her, where she was a failing idol who left the mainland and she left her group because she wasn't able to make it 
inside of the olive industry, and so she ends up going to Okinawa with no plan whatsoever, and then she ends up getting hired up at this uh, very struggling aquarium. And so because the general consensus and the formula that this series was going to do is that it was going to be, okay, there's a mystical moment that can happen inside of this aquarium. If you have some long-lost nostalgia or something that you haven't necessarily gotten over in the past, you can come to this aquarium and you can essentially make up and reconcile with your past mistakes and your past misgivings, and you can leave the aquarium a better person. And no, and I didn't realize until about 10 episodes in that this was going to be a 26-episode series. And I was like, oh my god, so you're telling me that we're going to get to the episode, we're going to get to the halfway point, we're going to get to episode 12, we're going to have the miraculous, like, everybody is able to have this universal miracle moment, and everybody's going to want to keep the aquarium alive, and everybody's going to go around and pitch, and everybody's going to be able to keep this thing afloat, and we're finally going to be able to see them bring the aquarium back into the limelight, and then they don't. The aquarium shuts down. And all the characters that we've been introduced to and gone to know over the course of 12 weeks have been able to get hired at this new large aquarium that is going to be opening up near the main Okinawan Strait. And they all end up taking a different path. Not necessarily a path outside of working inside of aquariums, but just a different path that I was expecting, considering that I was just going to go through like the standard generic anime formula where... Everybody gets together and it all works out in the end and they all they need to do is just kind of like pull out their bootstraps and kind of like step on the gas a bit so they can keep uh, the majority of things that they care about afloat. And this doesn't happen. We are now in a point where we flash forward a couple of months considering that the second half of the season is now airing in the fall season and they all get hired at this much larger, much more well-equipped system in terms of staff, in terms of aquarium equipment, in terms of the amount of people that end up coming to visiting, like now they have to adapt to this environment that's this kind of same because they have the experience and they have the knowledge and they have the wherewithal to go through with the jobs they've all been tasked to, but then in an entirely different aquarium with a different set of people, with a different kind of work environment, with a different schedule, with a different set of bosses, with like just everything changes. And the handful of episodes that have come out over the past couple of weeks leading into the second half has me really interested in the p potential ways that they could actually bring about and keep telling this story. So I'm really curious to see how this continues to adapt and evolve over the next couple of weeks because we know it's going to be 26 or 24. I'm going to have to double check on that. We know that it's going to be more than enough time to get everybody back together and try and mold into this different kind of experience. Although I do kind of hate the initial new group of characters, especially the ones that were introduced early on in the previous season, but are now just, they're bitches, dude. They are absolute assholes. So much to the point that the new bosses that have been like introduced are either completely incompetent or just don't know how to communicate between different districts and different, like, groups of uh, workers. And it's like, how the fuck do are you the assistant director? How did you get this high up without having, like, the knowledge and knowing the limits of the people that are working under you? It's, like, the, like the only um, negative points that I can give to this new uh, 
half of the season is just that the characters that we've been introduced to just don't seem to be as adept as the people that we've gotten to know over the past couple of years. Sure, they're in their positions, and sure, they got to their job somehow, but so far, even after like two to three weeks, there haven't been any indications on that they were competent enough to get that position in the first place. So I don't know how that's going to be transitioning, and I don't know how that's going to, like, relate leading on to the rest of the series, but at least I know that this show is going in a better direction than I initially thought it was going to. So I'm really curious to see how that's going to be playing out. And probably the comfiest, um, just most natural and most welcoming series that I was able to go through and finally experience again for the first time in several years, uh, Made Dragon's second season was just a joy every week to jump back into it. This was their first major television production after the arson attacks that uh, happened a couple of years ago. And the fact that it's even more bittersweet to the sense that the director of the original Dragon Maid season was one of the tragedies and one of the people who lost their lives inside of the fire, that watching the first episode and seeing that this was probably one of the last pieces of work that they were able to commit to and actually create, it was definitely a little tough to kind of like see their name in the credits. I'm sorry I didn't include it sooner, but Yasuhiro Takemoto did a fantastic job creating and adapting this work and putting it in the talented hands of the people that they were able to go through at Kyoto Animation. And this second season was just as much of a joy as the first season was, and I really did appreciate having being able to tune into this week by week over the previous season. And there's not really much for me to say about this, considering that if you liked the first Dragon Maid season, you're definitely going to be liking the second one, and if you still haven't been able to give the first uh, season of Dragon Maid a watch, it's just a really high recommendation because it's really hopeful, it's positive, it's cheerful, it's cute, it's fun, it's wacky, and it's an overall incredibly enjoyable experience for anybody who's just kind of looking for a nice escape or just kind of a nice little bright pocket of media for people to enjoy in any time that they need. And so I guess the last show that I kind of wanted to talk about, I didn't really watch week by week. I heard the rumblings that it was able to make in the first uh, handful of weeks that it was able to air, but Eaten Deities, or the Eaten Deities Know Only Peace, is a really interesting show, because this was done by Studio MAPPA, and I know I have my problems with MAPPA, but the, one of the problems that I also go through that isn't really a problem at all is that everything that they adapt is exceptional. And they have so many projects under their belt, and it's real. I'm really still concerned about how long they're actually going to be able to keep that up. But whatever they're able to adapt and whatever they're able to put their hands on just is able to get a different kind of polish than the majority of shows that were able to come out. And so The Deities That Know Only Peace was something that has got me thinking like a lot longer than I expected it to. Because I only finished it two days ago. It's a show that I thought was just... It was good, like a 7, except a 7 is a show that I kind of watch and enjoy for 12 weeks and then almost completely forget. Except this is a show that has just been racking my brain for days on end, and I haven't really been able to explain why. And part of the reason uh, why it's kind of set in is that the 
nature behind its creation is something that is unique enough that, like, of course I say unique enough, and is something that I haven't really seen, especially in an adapted work. Because originally, this was a webcomic that was uh, being written and drawn from 2008 to 2016. And it ended in 2016. And the anime, which aired this year, and probably started production around the end of 2019, basically adapted all the way up to the end of the webcomic. Except in 2016, no, sorry, not 2016, in 2018, a manga of the same story is being drawn and not necessarily adapted, it's being written by the same author, but it's being drawn by, hilariously enough, the illustrator of the um, Dragon Maid manga. And so they're doing this in tandem where he's, the original creator is doing the writing where the Dragon Maid author is doing the illustrations, and they're concurrently doing a manga version of the original story. And at some point in time, that manga is going to go and surpass and go beyond the story of what the original webcomic have. But it's not even close. Like, I think the manga is currently at episode 7 of the anime series, and the anime series was only 11 episodes long. And so we're in this weird point where as soon as I finished watching the anime, I was thinking, okay, I know this is an adaptation, um, I'm just going to go ahead and, and read the source material and kind of, like, see where this goes, because I'm really... They really fucking ended it on a hard cliffhanger at the end of this, where it's just... The char- the main characters are in a predicament that we have no idea how they're going to be able to get out of, because essentially, the demons that they fight have won to a degree, or they succeeded in a goal that almost guarantees their extended survival, and it almost guarantees their longevity as well as their victory over the deities that we consider our main characters. But that's it. We're, we're not going to be able to reach that point that the story ends up being for months, if not over a year. And so I'm really curious to see how long it's going to take the manga to catch up to originally what the original webcomic was able to get to and what the anime concurrently just finished on. So regardless of all this meta talk, the story is essentially these deities or gods uh, that have fought these demons for centuries, ends in these three gods sealing the demons into a realm, leaving one deity, one god, who is mentally very young, uh, to fend for herself and to watch and be the guardian of the seal that keeps everything. And she continues to live for centuries after this sealing. And in the meantime, every time there is a big enough conflict and there is enough prayer and enough hope and enough salvation that is needed from the human race, a deity gets formed. And at this point in time, at the beginning of the story, we end up having five deities. But there's, but somehow the demons of this world have melded into human society. And so now it's there, they have to go through and figure out a way to fight them. And the interesting thing about this series is that 
it's very action-oriented, not kind of like a shonen, but way more of a seinen, based on how how like brutal and depressing and deprived the majority of these characters go to. Because heads up, at the end of episode one, there is a rape scene. And if that's something that is definitely going to be turning you away, it's completely understandable. But it's it kind of comes out of nowhere, and it's just, okay, that was kind of ridiculous. But it does serve to the point to at least show us the depravity of the humans that these demons essentially lead. And that these demons are definitely horrible creatures. But even then, the Ditas themselves have done deplorable things on their own, but at least they do it for the greater good of humanity and allow them to thrive. Whereas the demons essentially push the humans into conflict and into pillaging and into death and destruction just because they think it's fun and just because they think it's, you know, it's their natural thing to do. And the most interesting part about the conflict between the demons and the deities is that the demons are so weak in comparison. They they cannot stand a chance. If any of the deities were able to, to like, face them in one-on-one combat, in a hundred-to-one combat, the deities on brute strength would kill them. They would beat them, like, outright. Their strength is so overwhelming that the demons that have more than enough aptitude to read the room in the situation are just completely like, oh yeah, we're fucked. Like, there's no reason for us to do, like, anything, and there's no reason for us to at least get into a fight because we are automatically going to lose. And the majority of them do end up, like, reading the room to the point where it's like, okay, we're gonna run, and we're gonna hide. And some of them are better at doing that than others. And the games and the moves that the deities make against the demons to get the upper hand, and then the moves that the demons use on the deities to get the upper hand there, it's essentially just one big chess game where brute strength is a factor, but the intellect and the moves and how, especially Miku, which is like the major, one of the major demon threats She's incredibly horny, and she is way too over the top to essentially go through. But underneath that, not necessarily facade, but underneath all that lust and after all of that leisure and eroticism is potentially, like, the best weapon to use against the deities, which is essentially her intellect. As she is the most applicable demon to use her skills to not only maneuver in and out of society, maneuver in and out of fights that she knows that she can't win, but at the end of the day, puts her on par with the deities who have also been doing this for centuries. And she is, without a doubt, the biggest threat and one of the more interesting characters that come out of this entire series. And so it's definitely something that I would wholeheartedly give a recommendation for, considering that it's only 11 episodes, and it's probably the biggest surprise... Well second to Odd Taxi, probably the second biggest surprise that I've seen all year. And it's also kind of, like, not shocking in the, in the slightest now realizing that the author of Eated and Deities, also one of his other projects that he started back in 2016, ended up being Ishizoku Reviewers, or in this case, more widely known as Interspecies Reviewers. And with the amount of clout and the amount of notoriety and talk that that show was able to get over the past couple of years, I'm definitely not surprised that they were looking for any other pieces of work that the author might have had in store, 
and Mappa was the one who was able to not necessarily jump onto it, but they were the ones that were tasked to bringing this story to life. And I definitely appreciate that they were able to, considering that they were able to give possibly one of the better surprises of this year, as well as top off a pretty good season of anime, all things considered. But I will come to, at a later date, give my perspective on how the fall season's going, and at a base value, I think it's going very well. I'm also really curious to see a handful of films that I'm definitely going to be interested over the next couple of weeks, considering that... The Violet Evergarden film just dropped on uh, Netflix a couple, uh, about a week ago. The Aria, the new Aria, the animation film, ended up dropping a couple of weeks ago. The third My Hero Academia film, even though the amount that I badmouthed it and the fact that I lament its existence basing on its detriment to the series as a whole... Unfortunately, I'm still going to go watch it, but considering how much of a downer and a disappointment the second film was, this might be the last film I decide to go see in theaters for the My Hero films, knowing that if this is basically going to be their cash cow and this is going to be their slipshod, half-hearted attempt to essentially milk this entire series dry, I can't in good conscience knowing that Probably 18 months from now, we're going to be getting another announcement for a fourth film, and I'm not really going to be interested in seeing it at all. So we're just going to have to wait for that inevitable announcement, but like I said before, I uh, apologize for the gaps in between the previous episode. I'm definitely going to try my best at moving forward with a handful of episodes coming out over the next couple of weeks with a week-by-week basis instead of a bi-weekly basis, so... I'm really curious to see how I'm going to be able to adapt those, even though I do have a couple of projects sitting in the woodwork, but I would also really appreciate it for you guys to stick around and see what else I have in store. So, sorry for the delay, sorry for the gap, and I appreciate you guys stopping by again. Cheers. (music) 